The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. But there could potentially be a problem if the committee wants to enforce that subpoena in court. Because there you, they, you can have the issue arise. Of course, this has never actually happened. <laughs> so, uh, but if the committee were to uh, try to enforce either civilly or criminally a subpoena to a member, the argument could be made on behalf of that member that the enforcement in court, that the judiciary cannot get involved in this because of the speech or debate clause. I'm Quinta Jurassic, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, January 18th, 2022. A crucial component of the story of January 6th concerns what members of Congress were doing on that day. What kinds of conversations did Republican lawmakers have with President Trump? To what extent did any lawmakers play a role in engineering the riot itself? These are some of the questions that the House Committee on January 6th is investigating. And it's seeking information directly from members of Congress, including House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy. So far, McCarthy and other lawmakers who have received requests from the committee have vowed not to cooperate. So will the committee subpoena fellow members of the House? What obstacles might it run into if it did? And what does it say that the committee seems to be nearing taking this step? I spoke with Mike Stern, a former senior counsel to the House of Representatives, and Lawfare Senior Editor and Brookings Senior Fellow Molly Reynolds about the questions of law and norms raised by the latest turns in the January 6th Committee's investigation. It's the Lawfare Podcast, January 18th. What happens when Congress investigates itself? Let's start by situating ourselves a little bit in the committee's investigation. Molly, can you tell us which members of Congress the committee's requested interviews with and information from or about so far? And how have those members responded? Yeah, so the kind of the most notable um, request, I think, is the one to um, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, just given his institutional position and the kind of the precedent I think it would set um, if he were to 
be issued a subpoena, but I, the committee has also requested interviews with Jim Jordan, um, and I believe also with Scott Perry, a Republican of Pennsylvania. Um, and then there's a broader set of members who the committee has asked telecommunications companies to preserve phone and other records about for for possible review um, review by the committee. And I think it's worth noting that while these members who the committee is um, requesting information from and about, this is a really important piece of their investigation. It is just one piece. So uh, before Christmas, the committee's vice chair, um, Luz Cheney, uh, said publicly that they the committee had done upwards of 300 interviews at that point with various witnesses. There are, you know, um, additional people who I'm sure they have requested interviews with who have yet to cooperate um, or have indicated they won't cooperate. So I think um, this is a really institutionally, a really important part of the story but it's certainly by no means the entire story of what the committee is up to. And why is it that the committee is looking for information from these members? Like how how does it fit into the bigger picture of the January 6th story? Yeah, so uh, as I understand it, they have reason to believe um, both from sort of things that we saw unfold publicly and semi-publicly before, on, and after January 6th, and then from other information that they've obtained, that members were certainly involved in conversations around the planning and execution and response to um, to January, January 6th. And so I think, for example, one of the things that they are interested in learning from some members about is the degree to which they were in communication with the White House on January 6th itself, um, including around efforts to sort of get President Trump or other administration officials to, to intervene. And so that that is what I see as um, a big part of what they're what they're trying to do. I, I think uh, I agree with that, and um, I note that the letter that uh, Chairman Thompson sent to Kevin McCarthy a couple of days ago uh, goes into some detail as to what specifically they want to get out of him, and that includes, of course, the fact that he had these conversations. Uh, with the White House and with the president on January 6th, which Thompson says is relevant to determining Trump's state of mind at the time that the Capitol was being attacked. And, but he, but they, he also identifies a, a number of other things, including the communications that McCarthy had with the White House and with other members later after the people left the Capitol uh, regarding the decision to object to the, to continue to object to the uh, electors from some certain states. There's a number of other things that, that Thompson goes into uh, that he wants specifically to ask uh, McCarthy about. And I think depending on which of these issues is at play may affect the legal questions that would have to be resolved. Yeah. And just to, um, just to add to that as well. Um, so there's also 
in some cases, the committee is seeking information from members about things that happened before January 6th itself. So in the committee's um, request uh, back in December to, um, to Scott Perry, that request, that letter was largely focused on um, questions around Perry's efforts to install Jeffrey Clark or sort of his involvement in efforts to install Jeffrey Clark um, as, the, uh, as the acting attorney general, which was part of the kind of broader strategy to undermine the results of the um, of the 2020 election. And so it's um, Mike's absolutely right that some of these pieces are about things that happened after the insurrection itself. Some of them are about things that happened during the insurrection. And some of them are also about things that happened before the insurrection itself. So Mike, you mentioned legal issues that these efforts might run into. It seems to me that there are a couple different buckets and ways that we could break this down. One are are issues raised by investigating uh, members of Congress that are normative but not legal. One is legal questions raised that are specific to investigating members of Congress. And then there is also the bucket of legal questions about the investigation as a whole that apply to both members and people who are outside Congress that could be raised by anyone who's uh, subpoenaed by the committee or had information requested by the committee. So to start off, can you explain what the normative objections might be here by, you know, McCarthy, Scott Perry, Jim Jordan to these kinds of informational requests and subpoenas if it comes to that? I think a lot of the objections would probably point out that if you go down this road, you are really opening up a new territory for congressional investigations that would have detrimental impact on the way that the institution functions. So it's certainly not unheard of for Congress to subpoena or either house to subpoena a member of its own house but that almost always occurs in the context of a disciplinary investigation of that particular member. It does not generally, and perhaps has never occurred in the context of a general legislative investigation. So if you take, for example, the questions that the committee wants to propound to Mr. McCarthy, about why was he objecting to the electors from certain states? If that were considered, and this would be the argument that that would be made on his behalf, if that were considered a proper topic for a committee to probe as part of its legislative investigation, uh, you could imagine any committee going, you know, starting to subpoena members to find out why they took a particular legislative position or what interest groups had, t- had perhaps they had talked to in connection with their position. And that that would simply be a major change in the way that the House operates. Just one thing to add is um, on, I completely agree with Mike about a potential concern about precedent setting here. Um, And I think some of this comes from comments that McCarthy has made in other contexts um, about how, for example, 
a Republican majority in 2023 would seek to remove Democrats like um, Elon Omar, uh, Adam Schiff, Eric Swalwell from committees because Democrats sought to remove several Republicans um, from their strip them of their committee assignments um, in this Congress. And so I think that that sort of notion of, um, of a, a tit for tat is there is evidence that we might actually see something like that that happen. And what is the significance of of how these kinds of investigations might have have historically been part of disciplinary proceedings or ethics investigations? And what does it mean to you that they're now branching out beyond that? Is that is is that sort of more significant as a as a step? Like, what does it mean that they've previously kind of been cabined to the ethics space? Well, I wouldn't really say that they've been cabin to the ethics space. I just think that that is the context in which the need to get testimony from members has come up. I can't think of an investigation which was sort of a, a broader type of investigation in which members were key fact witnesses. Like I think this is just a unique situation or a very unusual situation. But I think the argument would be made on behalf of the members that just because you can you you can subpoena us in a disciplinary proceeding does not necessarily mean that that same power should be assumed in a legislative proceeding. So I don't think there's much of an argument that the House lacks the power to subpoena its own members for legislative purposes, but uh, an argument could be made based on practice and tradition that when the issue of member subpoenas is likely to occur in the ethics process, the House has been very careful to set out the procedures that will be required before that process can go forward. So the Ethics Committee has a whole bunch of rules about when they can start an investigation, and and the Ethics Committee is evenly balanced between majority and minority precisely to prevent uh, one party or the other from using the process in an unfair political manner. The argument then would be made, if the House wants to allow a different committee besides the Ethics Committee to exercise this very serious power, it should do so and would do so only in a very explicit and careful way. And because the January 6th committee was not explicitly given any authority to uh, subpoena members, it shouldn't be assumed to have that authority. So let's then talk about the other specific legal issues that come up or could come up in requesting information or subpoenaing other members of Congress. Mike, the the first one that comes to my mind is the speech and debate clause. Can you talk through that a little bit? Yes. So the speech or debate clause basically protects members of uh, the House and Senate from being required to answer questions about matters within what's called the legislative sphere. But it applies in the, in the language of the Constitution to they're being questioned in any other place. And any other place in this uh, context means any place outside of the body in which they serve. 
So the speech or debate clause does not directly apply to a congressional subpoena to its own members, which is why speech or debate is not raised, for example, in ethics proceedings. So there's no direct speech or debate problem with the committee issuing a subpoena to McCarthy or Jordan or, or someone like that. But there could potentially be a problem if the committee wants to enforce that subpoena in court, because there you, they, you can have the issue arise. Of course, this has never actually happened. So, uh, but if the committee were to uh, try to enforce either civilly or criminally a subpoena to a member, the argument could be made on behalf of that member that the enforcement in court, that the judiciary cannot get involved in this because of the speech or debate clause. Right. And we know, um, Mike, from sort of having watched um, a whole series of fights over subpoena enforcement in the context of the January 6th investigation and in other recent congressional investigations, that uh, having to go to court, either using civil proceedings or the criminal contempt statute, um, has become quite common in high-profile congressional subpoena cases. And so I think that I'm just sort of underlying the the fact that kind of putting aside what a court would say about uh, the speech or debate clause in that context, the idea that a fight over a subpoena to a sitting member of Congress would end up in court in some way. I think that's pretty likely. It would certainly, well, certainly if the House, if the committee were to decide to enforce it, then certainly these issues will be raised by the by the member. So there actually is some law on this, uh, not in the direct context of a you know, contempt of a congressional subpoena, but in an anal- in some analogous issues in the D.C. Circuit. So there is a D.C. Circuit opinion involving Congressman Feeney, who had an ethics proceeding that he was involved in. And then the Justice Department tried to subpoena from his lawyers uh, some of the materials relating to that ethics proceeding, presumably because they wanted to look at potential criminal aspects of the matter that was the subject of the ethics proceeding. And the D.C. Circuit held that that was protected by the speech or debate clause. Uh, But there's an interesting, it's an interesting test that they have adopted in the D.C. Circuit based on prior cases. What they said was if the underlying, if if the underlying subpoena relates to matters in the legislative sphere, then it's then speech or debate applies, but if it involves something outside the legislative sphere, then it would not apply. That test really is sort of incoherent and very difficult to apply, which is uh, a point that was made by um, one of the judges on that panel, who happened to be uh, Brett Kavanaugh, uh, and he said, "I agree with the majority. This is the test we've adopted in the D.C. Circuit, but frankly, I don't think it makes any sense." And at some point, we should revisit this and say that the speech or debate clause prohibits this under any circumstance. So this conceivably could be a difficult issue um, and an issue that could go up all the way to the Supreme Court if, uh, if it comes to that, if the committee ends up trying to enforce a subpoena against one of these members. 
that test also seems particularly interesting because it it touches on some of the issues that we're now seeing play out in the the litigation of Thompson v. Trump, the lawsuit by uh, committee chairman Benny Thompson against Trump, where part of the arguments that are being made involve Trump arguing that his speech on January 6th was part of his duties as president and therefore that he's protected from civil suit under Nixon v. Fitzgerald and also Representative Mo Brooks arguing that the Justice Department should be representing him. Um, in this case, as he's he's also a defendant because his speech on January 6th was part of his congressional duties and not campaigning. You you get to the a similar kind of question of, you know, to what extent is encouraging uh, perhaps a riot or asking the president to call off a riot part of legislative duties? And to what extent is it just something completely different? Does that sound right to you? Uh, yes. It, well, it's it's analogous. The speech, there is a fair amount of law on, on what is covered by speech or debate, and it's narrower than the sort of all official duties that would be covered, that would be involved in a um, FTCA claim like um, Brooks is involved in. So I would think you'd probably have a hard time making the argument that calling the president to say that you should stop the riot, you know, you know, say something to call up these rioters, that that's part of the legislative sphere as it's been understood. But on the other hand, the questions about uh, the objections that McCarthy and others decided to make to the, that decision, you know, that discussion, those issues would be speech or debate, I would think, or at least much, be a much stronger case for uh, applying speech or debate. So that's why I said, depending on which of these topics you take from the letter to McCarthy, uh, you will have a stronger or weaker case for arguing that speech or debate applies. But as I, as I mentioned before, you could also take the position, which is what Kavanaugh suggested in his concurrence, that when a member is subpoenaed to testify in Congress in his own house, that is part of the legislative. It's not the subject of the of the uh, testimony that matters, but simply that they're they're acting in a congressional proceeding, and even though they happen to be a witness, that's that's still part of their legislative functions. I personally think that's probably wrong, but that was that is a position that Kavanaugh was leaning toward. So what are the other legal objections that members could raise? Are there any more that are sort of specific to Congress investigating itself? Or would they be left with the the same objections that other witnesses have raised? Um, and, and I think it would also probably be useful to just give a quick overview of, of what those other objections are, Mike. So the general objections that have been made, I think, primarily are either objections to the way the committee was constituted, which is one of the sort of one of the primary objections that has been um, made by many of the witnesses. So objecting to the fact that the speaker did not appoint the any of the Republican members that McCarthy had recommended and arguing that that is a violation of the uh, resolution that constituted the committee and therefore the committee is ultra virus in anything that it does. That argument, which we can discuss further, but that I don't think 
would be be any different for a member or non-member, it would be the same. The other set of objections relates to the whether the committee has a legitimate legislative purpose in its subpoenas, and that can differ. That argument differs depending on specifically what information it's seeking, but the sort of broader argument is essentially that there's no real need for the, for this committee to investigate January 6th for legislative purposes. It's all, it's really law enforcement. It's really uh, attempt to uh, score political points. And again, that sort of general objection is going to be the same for anybody. But I do think that a member potentially can try to make a uh, a specific objection with respect to subpoenas to a member that the test for the uh, determining whether there's a legitimate legislative purpose should be more stringent than it normally is. And that would be based on an extension of the Supreme Court's recent decision in, in the Mazars case in 2020. So we can um, we can talk about the sort of more general objections to the structure and constitution of the committee because Mike's right that those objections have come up from um, from other witnesses, other folks who have been asked to provide information. But just to um, sort of underline something on that, I think really perceptive point Mike just made about Mazars is that one of the things that I think some folks uh, said in response to um, to the Mazars decision is that it was it was about the president. It was about a certain type of information that might be sought about uh, about the president. But I think one of the things that that Mike is underlining is that it kind of opened the door to kind of broader. Um, appeals to that decision, invoking some of that that logic, whether um, a member would be successful in saying that Mazars means that a legislative purpose test for sitting members should be stricter than it should be for other uh, witnesses. I don't know, but I do. I think that um, it's one consequence, one potential consequence of Mazars um, that perhaps we wouldn't have had reason to appreciate at the time. Right. And and Molly, I know you've thought a lot about uh, the ways in which Mazars has kind of shaped how the committee is is conducting its investigation. Yeah, I mean, so I certainly obviously like we would we'll never know um, what they would be sort of emphasizing if Mazars um, hadn't been decided in, in the way it was. But I certainly think that the existence of Mazars and its logic um, and argument around legitimate legislative purposes has led the committee to kind of talk a lot more about what kind of legislation might be informed by the work that it is doing. Um, we don't know, um, as of right now, what kinds of hearings the committee plans to have. We do know, um, again, based on public comments back in December, that they are planning several weeks of public hearings um, uh, in this early part of 2022. One possibility is that some of these kind of legislative questions would be the sort of thing that they would um, they would explore, um, things like reforms to the Electoral Count Act, reforms to the Capitol Police, reforms to the um, uh, intelligence community, that sort of thing. And so 
my opinion is that we've seen more of that rhetoric than we might have um, in a non-Mazars alternative universe. We'll see how it ultimately plays out in the next couple of months. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. Want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contains some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing, since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers, and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report, and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information. Big culprit this time is something called My Life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have My Life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there, and these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay, and I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that, you know, they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back and then delete me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web. And in the process helps prevent potential identity theft doxing and phishing scams, Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. 
it's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate delete me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20, code lawfare20. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think that's a very, um, uh, very true what Molly is saying, that uh, the committee is clearly, when it, when it uh, communicates with witnesses, is making a point of always emphasizing the legislative purpose. And I, I think that would not have been something that would be, have been considered necessary or so important prior to Mazars. Uh, I think Mazars has um, very much influenced the way people look at these investigations. And perhaps, you know, unfo- it's unfortunate and perhaps not the right way to look at it, because I think there are some other arguments that the committee could make and perhaps will eventually make if it gets, uh, if it gets to that point. But um, right now, they are proceeding as if their investigation needs to be hooked to specific legislative outcomes, or at least potential legislative outcomes. And one sort of uh, one sort of irony of this, at least to me, is that um, there is other, I think, real substantive work going on in other congressional committees on some of these legislative questions that we don't want to kind of overshadow because the select committee is doing so much talking about its legislative purpose. So there was, for example, um, just this week, a report put out by the majority staff of the Committee on House Administration, which is the committee that would have jurisdiction over changes to the Electoral Count Act in the House. Um, Their majority staff put out a report on um, on potential reforms. On the whole other side of the Capitol, um, in the Senate, um, the Senate uh, in particular, several Senate committees have, I think, been continuing to do um, real strong oversight work around what are potential additional reforms needed to the Capitol Police um, and to Capitol Security. Some of those would uh, require legislation. Some of them, um, including some that have already been adopted, uh, would not. Um, And so I think that this, um, we've sort of ended up with kind of a a two-track conversation here about legislation and what it means to kind of have a legislative purpose um, in this area. I do think it's probably worth talking about the other piece that Mike touched on, um, the their argument that witnesses and folks who have been asked to provide information have been making about the structure um, of the of the committee. So I'll just start by kind of summarizing this at a high level, and then uh, Mike can jump in. And so we saw a like pretty clear articulation of this argument actually in a um, in a court filing this week in the D.C. District Court. 
from uh, the, the named plaintiff um, is someone named um, Taylor Budowich, who is a former Trump spokesperson, who is actually seeking to force the select committee to return some of his bank records um, that it has already um, obtained from uh, J.P. Morgan Chase. And in the kind of House response to this this lawsuit, you see um, the dev letter, the um, the House General Counsel, and um, a, a series of other attorneys kind of lay out their response to this argument that the the committee has not been properly constituted. And so basically, the arguments that others have made are some of the things that um, that Mike touched on before. So things like the resolution authorizing uh, the the committee specifies a certain number of members that it should have. It does not have that full number. Um, the resolution uh, requires consultation on the part of the speaker with the minority leader. Uh, it notably does not require the language says consultation. It does not say, um, for example, that the minority leader would get to appoint members directly himself. That sort of thing. So there really is um, there are um, there are a number of um, of arguments that that folks have made that say that the committee is um, is not properly constituted. Mike can sort of get into some of the specifics, but I'll say just as a general matter, courts have historically given a lot of deference to Congress on its internal rules under the the, the rule making clause um, that gives Congress the power to organize itself. And so I think my read is that generally the courts um, have tried to stay out of a lot of these cases because of the deference that they've given to Congress um, on these questions. But I'll let Mike come in um, and, and talk sort of more specifically. Yes. Yeah, so that's right. So there's actually two different lines of cases that are relevant here, potentially relevant. Um, there are cases that talk about that deal with the rulemaking clause where someone is trying to just generally complain about the the rulemaking uh, some rule congressional rule or or argue that it limits the power of Congress in some way. And in those cases the courts have said or the DC circuit anyway has said that where the a rule is ambiguous, it would be improper for the court to uh, interpret it because then it would be it would be essentially as, assuming the rulemaking function of the of Congress. On the other hand, in the context of contempt prosecutions, there have been instances where, it, where the courts will kind of strictly construe the rule in a way to ensure that witnesses are not sent to jail if the committee's power to ask the question is not clear or the uh, or the fact that the, that the witness was required to answer at that time was not clear or the lack of quorum, those kinds of things are often strictly construed in a way to ensure that the witness, that the uh, defendant's liberties are not um, infringed upon. So it'd be interesting to see which of those lines of cases will control here. But my general sense is this is kind of a pretty long shot type of argument. Clearly, the, the speaker, and I don't think anyone can argue, the speaker was not required to appoint the members that uh, McCarthy recommended. I think there's nothing in the resolution to suggest that, nor in precedent. I think I, I haven't actually seen the House's brief, but I imagine they cited some House precedents in which it was 
explain that the speaker has the discretion to to disregard the uh, minority's desired members on a committee if if she cho- chooses. So uh, I think that probably is going to be a difficult case for for the uh, witnesses to make. Uh, the argument that that they that even even if the, so even if the resolution didn't require uh, the speaker to appoint the members that McCarthy asked for, she was required to appoint thirteen members because the uh, resolution says the you know the speaker shall appoint thirteen members on this committee, and she only appointed nine. That is you know at least has a little more textual basis to it, but I find it difficult to believe that the courts are going to say that, you know, there has to be 13 members at all times. And, and in this case, what happened was she wanted to appoint Republican members. And after she refused to appoint two of the minority leaders uh, recommendations, everyone else refused, right? That's my understanding. You'd have to basically argue she should have appointed Democrats to to fill out the committee. And I don't think that really makes a lot of sense or that you can argue that the witnesses were damaged by her failure to do that, even if you believe that she was somehow required to. So let's talk a little about enforcement, which we've we've kind of been uh, implicitly addressing in describing uh, how a court might think about this. So, so far, I believe everything that has gone to a actual member of Congress so far has just been a request. The committee has not yet actually sent out any subpoenas. So let's say they do send out subpoenas. McCarthy, uh, Jordan, Perry decline to comply. What what happens then? What, what avenues are available? Mike and Molly, I'm, I'm interested in both of your thoughts here. Well, I I see there are sort of several different buckets. I guess the the first I think we've already touched on, which would be the legal enforcement that is going to court through uh, either a contempt resolution that would go to the U.S. attorney for prosecution under Title II, uh, a violation of the um, uh, Section 192 of Title II, uh, the, the uh, Congressional Contempt Statute. Uh, the other legal option would be to bring a civil suit, which was done on a number of occasions in the last Congress against uh, Mr. McGahn, for example. The committee seems not to be as interested in pursuing civil suits as as it was done in the last Congress, because it, I think, as Molly mentioned, it took so long to get these resolved. Uh, so what it has been doing is using the criminal contempt uh, statute and so, so that would be probably the most likely option if it goes the legal route. Another bucket would be internal disciplinary mechanisms. And I guess I can think of two primary ones. One would be for the committee to refer this to the ethics committee, right? And uh, ask for the ethics committee to investigate and point an investigative subcommittee and look at the question of whether the member who violated, who refused to comply with the subpoena had violated uh, their obligations under the House rules. Or alternatively, the committee could seek to just go directly to the House floor and ask for some sort of disciplinary member measure 
against the member, I guess would be analogous to what the House has been doing with respect to people who have been violating the mask rules and the uh, uh, walking around the metal detectors and things like that, where the House has been fining them. So presumably the House could try to do that as well, or do that in this case as well, to find members who refuse to comply with uh, subpoenas. And then there's one other option, which I mention only because it's sort of interesting and is theoretically available, uh, which would be to use the inherent contempt power, which would re- which would allow the sergeant at arms to go and arrest the member and hold them, uh, detain them until they complied. Uh, I don't think as a practical matter that is going to be done, but uh, it is theoretically available. So I think one kind of important broader question, I mean, Mike has done a really good job of laying out kind of procedurally, mechanically what the options are. I think a question that underlies all of that is, you know, what would actually work? Um, Would any of these enforcement avenues um, get a sitting member who is hypothetically issued a subpoena to cooperate in a way that he is choosing not to um, at at this point? And so, you know, we know, again, from the experience with um, Mr. McGahn in the last Congress, that um, certainly civil enforcement can be quite slow in compliance. We also know from the schedule of the uh, criminal uh, trial against um, Steve Bannon for his um, contempt citation that in addition to um, criminal contempt, not necessarily forcing an individual to um, comply with the subpoena in the way that civil enforcement might, that that also takes a long time. So I think it sort of raises a bigger question about what an aggressive posture by the committee against sitting members is meant to do. Um, if it ultimately fails to actually get the information from the members um, that they're seeking. And so in some ways, um, I I see this avenue of inquiry by the committee, again, which is a small piece, a really institutionally important piece, but a small piece of their overall investigation as also an important signal from the committee about kind of how they are thinking about what happened before, on, and after January 6th, that they are they are demonstrating that even if they never get the information that they are seeking um, in this case, that they think that there's a there there with some of their own colleagues um, around the run-up to the day itself and the immediate aftermath of January 6th. So I think as we think about enforcement, the sort of uh, symbolism in addition to the substance is important to think about. I also wanted to ask about some different ways in which the committee has requested information about members. So the the key one that I have in mind here is there was reporting, I think, some months ago that the committee had sent a preservation request to telecommunications companies for the phone records of a number of members of Congress who had some kind of affiliation with the Stop the Steal, including, I think, uh, Jim Jordan, Mo Brooks, uh, Lauren Boebert, and others. Um, And McCarthy had responded to that news by saying that the companies would be violating federal law if they did so. So Mike, I'm curious if you know what he was thinking of there. And and also if you could zoom out a little bit and give us some context on whether there are specific legal issues uh, raised or not raised by requesting information uh, from a third party about members as opposed to directly from members themselves. So let me let me start with the question of what McCarthy was saying. I, w- 
I think he was referring to what would happen if the phone companies turned over the records, not just preserving them. I could be wrong, but I believe what he was suggesting was that if they provide the information requested to Congress, they would be in violation of the Stored Communications Act. And uh, there are provisions, the Stored Communications Act governs uh, what these uh, communication companies are allowed to provide, and it doesn't have any specific provisions regarding congressional requests or subpoenas. Uh, So you get into an issue of statutory interpretation that has not been resolved. There has been, in the past, there have been proposals to explicitly amend the statute to make it clear that Congress was able to use, uh, to to get information from the phone companies, but that has not been, uh, that is not in the law at this time. So there is an issue. I think the probably the best prediction is that Congress would be able to get non-substantive, uh, that is not non-content, I guess is the term, information from the companies. So they wouldn't be able to get, say, emails, the, the substance of emails or, th- or phone conversations, but they would be able to get, you know, uh, you made a call to such and such number on such and such date, uh, that they would be able to get that. But that is, you know, remains a issue that will have to be litigated. There's also uh, been reporting about a subpoena to at least one House staffer. I believe her name is Maggie Mulvaney. Uh, She's a a staffer for a Republican member of Congress who, before she began her work there, had been involved in, in planning the Stop the Steal rally. And if I'm remembering correctly, when that news first broke, there were sort of some, some statements from Republicans saying, you know, that this was a really dangerous step, that it was a a breach. I'm curious for both of your thoughts on whether trying to get information from staffers as opposed to members themselves raises similar questions as it does for members or whether everything that we've discussed is really specific to the representatives themselves. So I'll let Mike talk about um, any sort of legal questions, but I will say the point I made earlier about sort of concerns about precedent setting would certainly apply to staff as well. Um, There are certainly other examples um, of congressional staff being um, investigated by congressional committees. But I think that, again, much like with the members, one possible consequence of the select committee taking an especially aggressive posture towards sitting members is if it took a similar posture towards um, staff, that you could see kind of that be picked up by a future Republican majority um, acting quite possibly in bad faith um, to to do the same sort of thing towards, um, towards staff in the future. But I'd be curious from Mike's perspective if there are any sort of ways we should think about it differently from the legal perspective. Yes. So the the couple of issues that we've identified, uh, the potential legal arguments that could be made by members that wouldn't apply to everybody, some of them I think would be different with respect to staffers. For example, arguing that the committee resolution needs to explicitly authorize the committee to subpoena staffers 
I think would be a, a much more difficult argument to make and, and less probably would be less um, attractive to, to make that. With respect to the, the, you know, the extension of Mazars also, I think that probably would be, again, it's a long shot as to whether that would be, could be made at all, but I, I think it would be much more difficult to make that argument with respect to staffers that they should be treated sort of in a special constitutional uh, manner. The speech or debate clause generally protects staffers in the same way as the members, as their alter egos. Uh, so if you if it came to prosecuting a staffer in court or suing them, those arguments could be made, even though theoretically the test is similar. And again, I don't know what specifically this staffer was being subpoenaed for. I guess it was for 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 a role in organizing the rally. Um, I think that would be, you know, probably viewed as as being outside the scope of speech or debate anyway. So I, I, I think probably the if the committee decided that it wants to go after the staffer, but not after members, my guess is that that would be viewed as, as somewhat of an act of, um, you know, restri- self-restraint on its part. Uh, and they, if they didn't go after the members, I don't know that the precedent would be such a big deal. It seems to me that the that the members have sort of signaled that they're prepared to go to the mat on this and they're willing to take the consequences and uh, pay back the committee in political damage if the committee decides. They, they've sort of, they may be bluffing, but they've sort of signaled that they're willing to, you know, defy the committee's subpoenas and go to the court of public opinion and sort of take the maximum amount of uh, the pound of flesh that they can get in political payback before they would, you know, rather than complying. I don't know if a staffer is going to be in the same position or that the uh, Republicans will put the same amount of um, effort into capital into uh, trying to protect a staffer. So I want to end by reflecting on the sort of bigger strategic picture here and, and what this focus on members of Congress for at least part of the investigation tells us about how the committee is is conceptualizing its investigation more broadly. Molly, I, I know you have thoughts on this. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so this sort of just picks up on um, what I was talking about before about the speed at which any effort to uh, enforce a hypothetical subpoena uh, would uh, unfold. And so I think that given the time frame that we're looking at, which is basically the committee has in all likelihood the rest of this year to complete its work. Um, we've heard different things from Chairman Thompson at different points about the exact kind of schedule they're they're planning on. But Suffice it to say, they don't have all the time in the world. I think one, uh, and you've heard um, Thompson mention this, um, Thompson or, or other committee members um, mention this, that they do intend to produce some sort of written document that um, sets out a coherent narrative of their findings, that at some point they're 
going to get all the information they're going to get. And that may, depending again on how things unfold, that may not include the information that they have sought um, so far from sitting members um, and their choice about how aggressively to pursue that information may come again, depending on the time and resources involved at the expense of pursuing other avenues quite aggressively. And I think um, Quinta and I, we have talked before about kind of what would constitute success for the select committee. And I think one thing I've always highlighted is the select committee getting information and making information public that only really it can get. And that might include some of this information from members. I don't know. But I think these questions that we're talking about, about both the sort of legal and substantive importance of this effort to get information uh, from members are are really important. But in the at the end of the day, they may not actually play a huge role in the ultimate account that the select committee produces. Mike, any any closing thoughts? Well, I think uh, yeah, I, I tend to agree that the uh, committee is on a very tight time frame and uh, probably if it decides to go after these members or any other witnesses, it's going to be doing that. It's not going to actually get anything that will be useful to it through doing that. It may vindicate its, um, its authority and perhaps be useful to some future committee that will uh, be able to get information more easily as a result of the committee being forceful with witnesses, but probably it is not going to be able to uh, to get anything through legal enforcement uh, in a time frame that that works for it. I, I would just, if I could, just I alluded to the fact earlier about the uh, the way the committee was focused on its le- on the legislative purpose and specific. Uh, legislation that it will be, you know, recommending or suggesting to other committees. I, I think in some sense that is unfortunate because really there is a long history of Congress uh, looking at its own internal affairs, both in the uh, both in the disciplinary context and also in the context of protecting its own privileges and ensuring the integrity of its own proceedings, that that is a separate constitutional power that it has. And unfortunately, the way that Mazars unfolded, which did not involve that power, uh, is constricting this very different factual scenario, one where Congress was actually its own proceedings were disrupted by this mob and really calls for a perhaps a different type of investigation than one that is just focused on legislative, specific legislative fixes. So I hope that the committee will be able to at least give a broad picture of what happened and to put it in, in context for the benefit of the, of the public and for Congress going forward. Yeah, I'll just end by saying I completely agree with that comment from Mike. And also, I think that um, focusing 
sort of having all of our focus on the select committee as the one organ of the United States Congress that is responding to January 6th really um, potentially does a disservice to other good work that is and could be happening in other parts of the institution. Um, We don't want to let the committees of jurisdiction in some of these areas um, off the hook for things that they should be doing um, to respond to what happened. And so I think it's both that the select committee really does need to produce some sort of comprehensive assessment and um, investigation of what happened. And also that real legislative change needs other members and other actors within the House and Senate to push it forward. All right. We'll end it there. Thank you both for coming on. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Please share the podcast and give us a review wherever you listen. And go to thelawfarestore.com for brand new pens, lanyards, and t-shirts. The podcast is produced by Jen Pacha Howell, and our audio engineer this week was Hamza Shitu. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening.